Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode two of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm so excited to welcome Professor Paul James. Paul works in social theory, and right now you can find him in the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney. For seven years, Paul was the director of the Cities Program within the UN Global Compact, the largest corporate sustainability initiative in the world. Paul's also worked in Papua New Guinea as an advisor to the Minister for Community Development. I'm thrilled to have you on the show today, Paul. Before we kick it off, I wanted to tell you, Paul, we met back in 2015 when I was working for the World Bank and you came to speak to us one afternoon about your work with the Cities Program. And it really stands out to me as a really significant moment in my career. It was it was such an aha moment for me and I was so enamored by the way you spoke about urban design and the urban landscape and the effect that our cities can have on human development. It was such a profoundly impactful talk that you gave to us. And ever since then, I've been looking forward to having the opportunity to work with you again. So suffice to say, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Wow, what an introduction. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. So, Paul, as I said, you are the former director of UN Cities, which is a part of the UN Global Compact. So, to begin, could you explain to us what the UN Cities program is all about and how it fits into the UN Global Compact? The Global Compact was set up as a corporate responsibility organisation and it became out of particular Kofi Annan's development of the idea that corporate responsibility should go alongside the emphasis on nation states. And as that was happening... There were a series of cities who said, well, you have some principles, and they developed 10 principles for how the corporate sector should operate. They were fairly low-level principles. They were things like you shouldn't use child labor or you should try and use sustainable technologies and so on. And the cities that started to respond to that included the city of Melbourne, but also a number of other cities around the world. And there were eight original cities that said, we want a global compact for cities, and we took on that as a secretariat in Melbourne. Um, It was first through the committee for Melbourne and then it came to me as director about four or five years after it had started. And those eight cities have been working very closely together. And then we expanded that program and we thought, well, those principles are not very demanding for good cities. We need to think about what we started to call principles for better cities. And we also started to think about And this is the key question that really gave rise to the stuff that we talked about earlier, Rachel, was what is it that makes for good sustainable development? And we went back to basics on that and back to the basics meant saying, what are the domains of social life which make for a city which allows people to flourish, to live as humans in relationship to each other and in relation to nature? 
And we developed a, a system called Circles of Sustainability, which then later became much broader, the Circles of Social Life. But the UN process was really that first stage of the development of Circles of Sustainability. And hence, the argument became sustainable development is crucial for cities. Can you comment on what the goals of the Global Compact are? I mean, it's referred to as the largest corporate sustainability initiative in the world. Is it largely about mobilising greater action from the private sector on human development or is it broader than that? No, it's largely about motivating companies to think about sustainable development along those 10 principles that I described. And it, it has a register of those companies and then those companies report back to the Global Compact in New York on their actions in relation to those 10 principles. It might sound, and I started by saying they were fairly limited principles, but in fact they became increasingly important. And the Global Compact when I was working with it, had about 10 to 12,000 companies signed up to it. One of the things we started to look at was the whole question of, is a, is a company aligning itself with those principles? But is it also working with other companies which align with those principles? Because a number of mining companies, and particularly in South America, became a little bit problematic because they were good companies which were using bad companies to do their work for them. And we started to then expand into saying it's also about your relations and your partnerships. So a partnership development process was developed. Now, the city's side of that was really we went much further. We actually started to work on projects in the United Nations, which were about best practice in relation to how you would do something. One of my favorites is um, the Porto Alegre example of working with a slum um, reclamation project where there was a, a problem of sitting together in relation to how they would relocate a slum and a slum being relocated is exactly the wrong thing to do usually because it just means there's a dispersal of those people from the informal settlement and when they're relocated they all come back into the city anyway so we worked on a system which said how can we relocate these people in a way that they will flourish rather than simply be relocated. And we used the circles method to do that. And a thousand people were moved. And one of the key dimensions of that particular movement was how do we set up a relationship to work for people who are garbage pickers in particular. And so we, we changed the way in which the city operated in its garbage disposal. And we made it illegal for people to pick garbage which was the, the mandatory side of it. But then we changed the garbage disposal system so all garbage was taken to new depots next to those informal settlements where they ran alternative entrepreneurial but cooperative businesses in garbage uh, reclamation themselves. So they were doing, they became the middle people for their own work and they started to make uh, enough money to live on, whereas previously they were living under quite dire circumstances. I imagine that that is a topic that is becoming more and more important as we see the effects of climate change tend to disproportionately affect people in informal housing. Yes. Uh, this is an issue in Jakarta that I've been learning a little bit about recently, whereby the informal settlements are right on the water when, when there are storm surges. They are the first ones to lose their homes. So relocating them is almost inevitable. But the question is, how can you relocate people and enable them to thrive? How can this actually be a really positive step? And it sounds like that was what the work was focused on. Exactly. So what we were trying to do is think about 
people's lives in general and set up a framework for what people's lives would look like. So instead of saying you just move people and you set up a new high-rise apartment where they all move into and then they go and find their own jobs and then they live happily ever after, which never happens. It's, it's called the bulldozing technique and it's been used in many cities around the world where they bulldoze the slum, set up a high-rise apartment alternative, move the people and then they're on their own. The alternative here was what makes for a flourishing community? So it took two years of consultation to go through the stage before the movement. It then meant they were consulted about where they were going to move to, what that place looked like, what the architectural design of the streets were going to look like, where the kindergarten would go, where the library would go, what sporting facilities would be available, and how they would work, how they would move, how the transport systems. So it was a very deep consultation process uh, supported by the Brazilian government, but also by an amazing group of people in the city of Porto Alegre and by the people themselves. When they started this process, there was no trust whatsoever. They, they were screaming and shouting and crying for about six months because they didn't trust the city. And it was because of uh, two remarkable caseworkers that that slow process of trust was built. And then we carried it forward into a, a transition to a new place. Now, as you said, the waterways question is a crucial one because most of those waterways in the global south in those big mega cities like Jakarta are very polluted and therefore they were the last places to be settled and they were settled by people informally who simply moved into slum settlements. Those people will now have to move, but for not just the reasons of climate change, but also the reasons that those those rivers need to be reclaimed for public use. And effectively, while we can be very romantic about those informal settlements, they're also another form of privatisation of property. So if we bring back a public space, those people need to be moved, but they also need to be moved in a way that doesn't just put them in high-rise apartments and leaves them to... To, or to languish effectively and to find that the grey economy no longer works for them and that they've, they've got no access to jobs and that they're actually in a worse situation than they were when they were being inundated by water. So a method for doing that is a really crucial aspect and that's what we developed. I like that you've used the phrase flourishing community and I think when we when we have these discussions about cities, we hear things like what makes a smart city, what makes a fair city, what makes a sustainable city. And I suppose these aren't questions that necessarily have clear answers. Last year, you uh, co-authored an article for The Conversation that asked the question, what actually makes a good city? And I think the conclusion that you came to was that a good city is a highly subjective concept. But could you comment on that question a little bit more and talk us through your thought process on that? Yes. So we went through a, a double process and it's similar to all the work that we do. It works from a high level global theoretical um, engaged based upon massive consultation with lots of experts and local people around the world. But we set up a framework which I started to describe as a four domain framework for understanding what are the domains in which people need to flourish. And what was happening was that the triple bottom line idea of economics plus environment with this externality called the social. And the social became a grab bag of extra things which were thrown in and anybody could just add it in. But really the economic dimension with this externality of how do we not destroy the environment while we make for a good and, and what they call prosperous city. 
Now, prosperity, and I know you and Habitat uses the term prosperity as its, its, its key term. Prosperity doesn't mean lots of money. It doesn't actually mean it. You can have a prosperous economy, which is mixed economy, which is complex, which doesn't have high finance flowing through it, which doesn't have uh, the kinds of things which we normally take with the term prosperity. So we started to use the word flourishing. So it encompassed the economics, the politics, the culture and the ecology of places. And then we said, well, if we start from the top, what are the subdomains to ecology or to economics or to politics and culture? And we did that as a first principles discussion with many people around the world so that it works as well for Port Moresby and Curitiba as it does for New York and London and Paris. And because we did that in a way, we, it meant that the terms we used and the way we approached it was able to be modified as you got to the lower levels of what makes for a good city. Because what makes for a good city is variable. It's subjective. It depends upon the people who live in that city, but it would always have a cultural dimension. It will always have an ecological dimension, an economic dimension, a political dimension. So we set up a framework which allowed for the subjective difference and the geographical and historical and other differences of cities where they can make for their own flourishing. But we set up a framework in which they have to take into account all the dimensions of flourishing. You also designed the concept of circles of sustainability, which you touched on earlier and said it's also evolved into circles of social life. I've, I've worked a little bit with the circles of sustainability tool and find it incredibly useful. Can you talk us through how you designed the tool and how you've used it in your work? It had two parts to it. One was what is the framework for looking at critical issues and therefore how do you assess what makes for a good city? That was the, the profile circle. And the other one was the process circle. How do you go about making a project that involves people thoroughly and works its way through the basics of what is a circle of engagement with people. And it starts with a commitment and engagement to work on a project and so on. And we put those two things alongside each other. And as we did so, we realised that circles of sustainability wasn't enough because it's one of the things about the word sustainability, we often lose it because it's a good word and we see it as a positive word in itself. Sustainability can be good or bad. Sustainability is not actually what you need because everybody talks about dynamics or change or we need social change in order to make for sustainability and we just did the obvious thing and say sustainability is about endurance durability not changing therefore what are we talking about when we're saying we need change for sustainability we need deeper principles which go behind both of them which say what we're trying to change to in order to sustain what so we needed to, to talk about what we needed to sustain. We'd, and we developed a third layer to this process, which is called the circles of capacities. What are the capacities that we need to do that sustaining while we're going through the process of a project to make for a good sustainable and a flourishing sustainable city rather than just a negative sustainable city? And I, I'll need to do two things here, or at least distinguish between negative and positive sustainability. Negative sustainability, which most of the indexes are based upon, is what you do to alleviate bad things. Positive sustainability is what you do to make for a flourishing city, and both of them need to come together. But most of the systems that are at work mean that you are a more sustainable city 
if you alleviate bad things. And therefore, the principles for Better City pulling all those things together became a negotiated process by which you used the figure of sustainability or the figure of what is a good city, and you worked your way through it yourself as a city, changing the details of that to make it clear for yourself what you thought was a good city. That is so fascinating to hear. And I think you've raised a point that I hadn't considered, which is livable for whom? When we're talking about how livable a city is, who in that city are we actually talking about? And I think what what I'm seeing more and more of is bottom-up strategies for resilience as well as top-down strategies for resilience, uh, whereby there is seeming to me to be a dual emphasis on helping to build resilience at at the very lowest community level, uh, as well as building resilience at a much higher entire city sort of level. Yes, And I think that's more in the scope of, of climate resilience. But I imagine that that also relates to resilience to things like economic shocks and disease outbreak, etc. Indeed it does. And the term resilience is a fascinating one as well, because it is a very good term like the term sustainability is a very good term. But it's been often taken out of context. And I just used the example of the the recent Puerto Rican um, issues of water sustainability where they had cyclones and they had problems with water. And Donald Trump said, wow, they're good people. They're very resilient. Therefore, we don't have to provide any support to them. And resilience, very unfortunately, is being used as an excuse for saying, and it's really about bouncing back. They're saying, if people are good at bouncing back, then we can let them go and we can let them look after themselves. And the idea of the mutuality of this process of resilience in a world of climate uh, challenges has been lost. And most of the emphasis is going on how to make them resilient rather than what is the relationship between resilience across different frameworks of understanding of good sustainability, positive sustainability, positive flourishing of communities. So to take you one more step into that process, what's been happening in the resilience framework was done very nicely by the original claims of the Rockefeller Foundation as they went into the world with their resilience framework. But what happened to it was the framework itself got caught up in those older systems of analysis that I described. And what happened to culture in that? Where is culture? It's under economics. Now, have a look at the framework and you'll find that you will. And why is leadership one of the key domains of resilience? Why isn't uh, the engagement with people one of the key domains? So if you look at the domains, they are corporate in their orientation. They've been developed by uh, a consultant, which did it on the back of their own infrastructure um, company, where they had certain presuppositions about what makes for resilience. And they forgot that resilience is ecological and political and cultural and economic. And these really simple, basic terms mean that you're going to take into account things in a way that forces you to be sensitive to the variation of difference in different places. And sometimes it's leadership and sometimes it's not. Some And why? But leadership takes up a quarter of their emphasis in that particular resilience framework. It's Frameworks are really important for sensitizing and good people 
um, can do great things with resilience as a framework, but we find ourselves increasingly caught in the frameworks themselves. What I'm taking from that is it sounds as though much of the narrative on resilience and sustainability has been very focused on how those concepts apply to a very small subset of the population as opposed to how they apply to the poorer majority. And it sounds as though your work is really helping to change that, which which is really exciting. mm. I'd like to try to apply some of these concepts to a particular context. On the last episode of the podcast, we had Dr. Genevieve Nelson, who is the CEO of the Kokoda Track Foundation. And we talked a lot about development in PNG. And I know that you've worked extensively in PNG. I've worked quite a lot in Port Moresby myself. So I, I wanted to ask you, having worked in Port Moresby, what's your take on on the city of Port Moresby in terms of its sustainability or its fairness or its resilience? If you had to make an assessment of Port Moresby, what would it be? Um, Port Moresby is an utterly contradictory city. It's it's on the liver, world's liberal city index. It's ranked the lowest except for Baghdad and um, the Syrian cities, Damascus, for example. So it is a difficult city to live in. It's a horrifically violent city for people who walk around the streets or who are driving cars as wealthy white people do. Um, It is a difficult city for even uh, young women who are locals to the area and indigenous to But the indigeneity question is complex because indigenous to the area is also beset by lots of waves of migration from the smaller villages from the highlands to Karama to whatever across the whole of Papnunia focused on Port Moresby. My view of the city is it has a remarkable opportunity to be a fantastic city. It, it is on the coast. It has hills and mountains. Those hills and mountains behind it haven't been completely overwhelmed by suburbanization yet. They, there are lots of small communities that live often in formal settlements in Port Moresby, which have a deep and abiding relationship to the smaller village communities, which might be two or four hours away, where the relationship means that there are trading networks, which nobody really sees. There is the possibility of food growing in the city, urban agriculture, um, and the movements of agricultural goods from those small communities four hours away into markets. There is small communities which are making for themselves. And you mentioned in the introduction, I worked with Dan Carol Kidu, one of the great and remarkable people of this planet who works slow and closely with small communities to give them the sense that they could do other than just be wild and gang-like um, uh, enclaves and a number of the communities she worked with then started to set up their own women's basketball network netball teams and they set up um, teams for doing vegetables and and she was part of a group and she was the minister for community development she set up uh, ways in which the markets could work to both regulate the movement of food but not so regulated that people who were small landholders, couldn't sell food into it without massive over-bureaucratization. So, in effect, Port Moresby could be remarkable. It's not, but it has remarkable potential. It has lots of small communities, which are places which could be much better than they are, and people are working very hard to make them so. Yeah, I really like that take on it. I'm not sure if you can answer this, but if we... If we were to help Port Moresby to realise its potential, 
at this stage of their development, what would be some of the first steps we'd have to take? Well, they'd be planning steps. For you have to go through many of these things and I'd be working my way. I'm going to start with the politics of it first. And the politics of it would start with planning, which I would call ontological planning rather than simply spatial planning. Ontological planning takes into account people and who they are, their existence. Ontology means the nature of your existence. And there's firstly a division between those who are indigenous to the to Port Moresby and who are customary owners of the place and those who've come in as um, as one talks or as people from other villages who are living in formal settlements. We'd have to deal with that issue. We'd have to deal with the land use issue and we'd have to set up zoning systems which um, made um, the kinds of informal settlements creep that's happening to Port Moresby illegal. It'd be tough laws. They'd be laws which would stop the movement of people, but they'd also be laws which gave rights to people in new ways as well. We'd have to then think about the, the way in which the city in its somewhat, it's burgeoning wealth in the, because of the gas um, uh, addition, because of the, the natural gas which is coming from the pipeline and goes through some of the villages to the west uh, and then is used for um, export from Port Moresby. We'd have to work out how that works in its redistribution form so that the people of Port Moresby were part of the process of thinking about the the wealth of that that city and that country rather than separate it off. I'd bring in um, what the Latin Americans call participatory budgeting, where part of the budget is actually located, it's maybe only 20% of the budget, is located where people are involved in making decisions about how that budget is used. And you set up a system of, of, of consultation which enables people as communities, not individuals, to make claims on it, not even communities as individual communities say we want money spent here, but rather for a larger consultation process which brings in a governance system across Port Moresby. I would have to move around the whole of the circle to do it, but I'd be doing it with the government, with the municipality, with those people who are working on urban planning and cities, and I'd start to work my way around the circle and get people involved in thinking about what makes for a good city. It would take months, maybe even years, but it'd be worth it. It would be worth it. That it's so inspiring to hear that. You you touched upon this community driven development model. Participatory budgeting is an element of that, but all about these participatory development processes. And this is a trend I think we're seeing globally over the past decade towards community driven development, where we have a real emphasis on getting the community involved in the planning stage of projects and in the implementation of those projects. How important is these community-driven or overtly participatory models in the development of our cities? They're utterly fundamental and crucial. But as I say that, I also want to say that the structure in which the participation occurs is fundamentally crucial as well. There is a tendency towards participation ending up as being meaningless and lots of time is spent on it but there's no there's no structure for the engagement which allows um, the people's voice to then work in a structural way in relation to decisions that are being made and that's that's a complicated thing and it's actually a complicated thing from both sides too because many um, communities who are very powerful uh, given the ways in which um, 
various so- social media systems and software and all these things make possible people's voices to be much louder than they are they were in the past. Participation is absolutely crucial within a framework, but it also can be, it can actually be incredibly disruptive. Now, I'll use an example from Berlin rather than from Port Moresby. There's almost no participatory citizens' involvement in Port Moresby um, except through that minister who did some remarkable work. And, and some of those small programs have continued on, but not in an integrated and formal way. In, in Berlin, they wanted to get the development of the old um, Tempelhof Airport, which was the Nazi airport, which had been constructed by Hitler. And they tore down the walls of the airport, left it open to anybody to use for 10 years. And then they said, no, we want to have a consultation about how to develop it. And everybody said, who was in the local neighborhood, said, we don't want it developed. We want it open because it's fantastic for our children to fly kites and it's fantastic for this and that. And and it is a wonderful space. And so don't take me as being overly um, critical of the local community. But it was a not-in-my-backyard response, which was based upon they had grown up there, they were used to it, they liked the idea of being open because it was good for them, but it wasn't actually good for the entire city. What the city did, with goodwill, got the best planners, the best architects, and they wanted to put in a a gallery and a library and some housing, including some housing for the rich, but some social housing as well, which would have the housing for the rich was going to help pay for it. They were going to keep two-thirds of the spaces still open, and it was a beautiful project, but it wasn't done consultatively in the right way because in Berlin what they needed to do, because once the, the local community got on board and said we don't want it, then they enlisted lots of activists who then said they don't want it either because it was an imposition by the city. The city, what they should have done was start a whole of city negotiation of what do we do with open space? What do we need as a city as a whole? What are our strengths and weaknesses? Where do we need, rather than doing site-by-site discussions of particular things which led people to fearfully hold on to their open space because they were fearful, as in many cities across the world, that developers will get hold of it and fill it in with uh, apartments for the rich, with a bit of open space for the poor. They were rightly fearful of that, except that Berlin is a very different government. But their suspicion meant that we didn't actually get good development. What we got was a massive open space, hectares and hectares and hectares of open space that is now being used simply for kite flying and people who use skateboards and an occasional um, local market or something, but nothing which is structured into the place. And so the interesting thing about it is you could have had something better, but we couldn't because we couldn't have good consultation. We couldn't, we don't have good participation. We have participation, of course. So in the case of Port Moresby, and I'll go back to the, the very good example of um, participatory budgeting. Participatory budgeting is not thousands of voices saying, I want money for this or that. It's thousands of voices saying, I want money for this or that, which is then moderated by experts and planners who negotiate with them about the patterns of process. So, for example, if everybody says, I want my pothole fixed, the amount of money involved in that is massive and it will take away from everything else. So it's a kind of deliberative democracy where we go back to the people and ask them, do you know the consequences of what you're asking for? If we spent that amount of money on roads, you wouldn't have any kindergartens, for example. Or we spent that amount of money on kindergartens, you wouldn't have an open space for your dogs and children to play. So 
What is what do you really want if you trust us completely and we trust you on that 20% of the budget? How do you want to focus that budget given this relationship to the past and how money's been used? I think that's such an important element of meaningful consultation is informed consultation and ensuring that the input that people make is made with an awareness of the bigger picture, which is, is often what is so hard. And I think you also touched on this idea that consultation can risk being tokenistic and symbolic rather than having a, a meaningful impact on the project. So I think I definitely echo your sentiments that consultation's great, but we need to do it properly in order yes. for it to have the impact we want it to have. Yes, and in that consultation process, we can't expect that people will trust the people doing the consulting immediately because the history of it is not really good. The history of consultation is you bring lots of people into forums, they have loud discussions about things, and then the plan is not that much different to what it would have been otherwise. And that consultation then causes distrust from local people. So it can't simply be local forums to discuss things. It has to be structured and people have to see what the structures are and have to be see how the decision-making process relates to those structures. I just want to change the topic a little bit now. When uh, I was studying in India a few years ago, I remember learning that something like 80% of the infrastructure that would exist in India by 2050 hadn't been built yet. And that sounded like such an amazing opportunity to me to get it right. You've got an 80% chance of of getting this right and doing it with with regard for the latest expertise and design knowledge and urban planning and everything. And then when we think of cities like Sydney and Melbourne for instance, but also some cities in developing countries where the infrastructure is almost done, you know, the cities are full. When I think of Sydney where I live, we, at least in our CBD, we don't have a lot of room to, to do it again or to start over. So I'm, I'm interested in, in cities where the vast majority of infrastructure is already built. How can you redesign or reconceptualize the city to be more functional? Wow, that's a really tough question. And Sydney is one of the toughest cities of the whole world to think this through um, because it has massive infrastructure, of course, but it's designed around the car in particular. And Sydney is actually hoist on its own beauty. And the the problem of Sydney is its geographical location around a series of bays and rivers and harbours and so on. Because if you put those two things together I've just described, of the, the difficulty of movement of people and a, a geographical system which has made... Um, a lot of ad hoc decisions about how freeways will go in and how tunnels will go in and so on. And put that together with the emphasis on cars over the last 80 years, then Sydney has built itself a chaotic mess, which is only made possible and only works because it only has 4 million people rather than 20 million people. If we were Jakarta, if Sydney was Jakarta or Melbourne had 10 to 15 to 20 million people, we would be in as bad a situation in terms of the mobility of people as those cities are. And they would be, and Sydney is as a footprint like Melbourne does, which is in fact built around an unsustainable sprawl. The way in which the next steps would need to work would be transport-oriented development. And I hate to say this, but it would have to take and I don't like the Singaporean model of planning in the sense that I think it's too top-down. 
but it would have to take the form of 50-year planning horizons rather than 10-year ones with a plan to think through what a post-car city would look like and what mass transit between precincts would look like. Therefore, a lot of the money would be going into precinct development and layers of transport between those precincts with an emphasis on the complexity of those precincts, um, meaning that jobs are available in those precincts rather than people traveling massive differences. The average distance that, or the average time somebody travels across Sydney at the moment is between 45 minutes and an hour to get to work. Now, that's the average. When you say average, that's the average. Some people walk to work. They live close to it. Some people take two hours to get to work. But that's a terrible average. And that average hasn't changed across the course of all that infrastructure being put in. So the irony and your example of, say, Mumbai or Mumbai is also very constrained by its geography. It has other opportunities, and New Delhi is the same, and, and Hyderabad. Hyderabad is much more the planned city and has a series of roads, which are ring roads around it, and it's planning for the long term as it's doing those things. The process by which Melbourne and Sydney need to think would be to go in for a consultation process which would require people to rethink their use of cars. Everybody, if, if you just simply had voting, everybody would say, I'd love to keep my car. And unfortunately, I think we should be moving towards the London system of, of slowing down people's movement through the CBD. I think we should be diminishing the amount of parking in the city. I think we should be doing a whole lot of things which people will find very uncomfortable. But that's what I'm describing as a structural shift, which means deliberately, in a deliberative way, we would have to then think, if you want to keep your car, what are the consequences? We're not going to do away with everybody's cars, of course, and, and that can't be a top-down decision. But it can't be at the moment, and this is where Sydney um, futurists tend to go. They say it's all going to be solved because driverless cars will mean the car will arrive at your place and simply go to where you want, and there'll be no need for any parking. If we don't have a system in place that moderates driverless cars and says, ownership of driverless cars has certain consequences, then the wealthy will say to themselves, hmm, my driverless car can drive around the city all day long because it can't find a parking spot and wait for me to be picked up. And therefore, I will be picked up at the time that I want and I can drive back to my place in perfect harmony while my driverless car has been causing congestion for everybody else four hours previously. Or alternatively, they can say, I can work in the back of my car Instead of travelling 45 minutes to work, I've decided I'll travel and I'll live in the Blue Mountains and travel an hour and a half to work because my driverless car will allow me to work in the back seat. But that'll actually cause more congestion than we currently have in Sydney. So Sydney currently has around 75% of those entering the city enter by public transport. But you know that Melbourne has 90%? Sydney thinks that 75% is good. 75% is not good. It's bad. Yeah, I agree. What I'm taking from that is that the more developed a city is, the more difficult it becomes and the more uncomfortable it becomes to make these changes. So we can still is, make them. Yeah, we can still make them, that's right. But the more uncomfortable it becomes, you're exactly right. I, when I said I'd have to turn to the Singaporean model, they don't have any discomfort in making some of these big decisions because they are planning for that 50-year horizon. They don't have cities, they don't have cars congesting their cities. They've decided which cars can be there and which cars can't. I don't want that to happen, 
but I do want a deliberative process where we decide as a community about what sort of city we want. And so it goes back to the same as I was describing the Berlin situation. You don't ask people whether they want the M4 or not. You ask them what kind of city they want and how much congestion do they want. You ask them questions which are bigger questions than will this infrastructure project work or not. And Indian cities face exactly the same problem, unfortunately. While 80% of the infrastructure is still to be built, people have congregated into those spaces. They're not empty spaces that those infrastructure systems will go into. They are difficult systems. Cities like Guangzhou or, or Beijing or Shanghai, they have command economy politics which means they're putting in a subway system which is going to manage a lot of this problem. But they're, they're all congested at the moment while they make this transition. I want to change the subject slightly. You've done a lot of work on Antarctica, which I find particularly fascinating. Can you comment on some of the untapped potential uh, diplomatically and perhaps culturally as well that Antarctica has and, and comment on whether we are starting to realise this? Wow, what a question, because it sounds like it's totally not connected, doesn't it? But it's, yeah. it's really is connected. What my work is doing is working with global processes as they link into local communities and how they live. And so that's the big, broad framework. And Antarctica is one of the world's global commons. It is pronounced as a global commons like the high seas are or the atmosphere or outer space. And they're named by the United Nations as a global commons. There are a number of nation states which lay claim to a sovereignty in Antarctica, but there's a treaty which means that that is only based at the moment on goodwill around scientific exploration, discovery and environmental protection. So it's, it's a place which can actually give us a sense of what's possible in relation to open and global spaces as well as local spaces. The potential there is extraordinary as long as it maintains that global covenant. And I use that word covenant very carefully. It's a covenant which humanity has in relation to a space that we will together operate to make that space good and flourishing. And flourishing in this case means that there shouldn't be sorts of mineral exploration processes, but there might be some uh, extraction of some foodstuffs, for example, the, the krill or the, um, the other mechanisms for pharmaceuticals that are being explored. There are some ideas that we're using down there in Antarctica for the ways in which um, research on climate change can be given much more acuity because the, the particular dimension of Antarctica gives to knowing about either ice melts or the breakup of the uh, ice float or the ways in which um, atmosphere is changing in terms of heat. And they are horrific figures we're getting from Antarctica. But my real interest in Antarctica is the cities that relate to Antarctica. And there are four cities at the bottom of the world, Hobart Christchurch, Punta Arenas, Ashwaya, actually five cities, and Cape Town. And those five cities are named as the gateway cities to Antarctica. And what we're trying to do with those cities is change the language so that instead of being gateway cities, which means gateways for which infrastructure and people flow into Antarctica, we're trying to uh, work with those cities so they become custodial cities, custodians of a global commons, custodians of an environmental future, custodians of a cultural past, custodians of history and custodians of politics. And so those cities operate outside of the national framework where currently sovereignty and, and land claims are being fought over 
to where the city is not trying to fight for territory or space. It's trying to say we will be a city which treats ourselves as having a custodial relationship to this place. And that would work similarly for the Amazon basin. It would work for the Great Lakes, which encompass um, Northern America, Canada and the United States. It would work for the Bay of Bengal, which is now being um, divided between um, Bangladesh, India and and the other couple of countries which are on that literal border. So um, when those countries are fighting over it, Dakar could say, or some of the other cities, not quite on the coast, but Dakar could say, we see ourselves as a custodian of the Bay of Bengal. And that kind of idea of a city is one that I find really attractive. That is so interesting. And I, I love this concept of custodianship as well. And I've, I've enjoyed reading about about your work in that area. I think that is a really fantastic point to end on today, Paul. Thank you so much, Paul, for being on the show today. Once again, your wisdom just amazes me and I feel so inspired leaving this conversation. So thank you so much. It's wisdom that's not mine. It's wisdom that comes from thousands of complicated and horrible interactions with people who worry about their world. And all I'm doing is distilling that into a process of discussion of how we can actually have those discussions to actually make the world a better place. So it's not particularly me. It's a whole team of people. Well said. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks, Rachel. That was episode two of Goodwill Hunters with Professor Paul James. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. I found Paul's insights so fascinating, particularly his discussion of the circles of sustainability methodology, and it's one that I really hope I can use more in my work. Thanks again for tuning in to episode two and tune in next week for episode three of Goodwill Hunters.